Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast. My name is Sean Murray. I'm a news reporter for the Irish Examiner and stepping in again for Mick this week. Now, Ireland's women made history in getting to their first ever Soccer World Cup finals. And as the atmosphere built ahead of their games in Australia, it did provide a welcome relief on what was the wettest July on record back home. But now, three games later, Ireland's women are home after failing to get past the group stage. And they come back with somewhat of a cloud hanging over them in the form of what appears to be a rift between manager Vera Pau and star player and captain Katie McCabe. To discuss all the goings-on and the legacy of this World Cup, I'm delighted to be joined by John Fallon, who's soccer correspondent with the Irish Examiner and is only fresh back from Australia himself after being covering the team. Thanks so much for joining us, John. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you? Good stuff. Now, we're speaking just ahead of a reception that's happening today on Dublin's O'Connell Street for the team. We're expecting a lot of people. There's going to be big fanfare for it. But is it fair to say that we still have this cloud hanging over the team that I mentioned with the Vera Pau situation? given we don't even know yet what her future is going to be. Yeah, cloud in every respect. Yeah, cloud of rain and a cloud of uncertainty. Um, you know, even to have a reception, um, an occasion like this in itself is a bit strange. And I know some of the players are a bit miffed by the whole thing. You know, they went to play three games, scored one goal, got one point, And uh, it's a big carnival atmosphere. Um, and you've got a lot of, players in that team who are used to winning games they're competitive they don't like defeats they don't like going uh, games without scoring so that in itself um, I suppose is again causing a little bit of bewilderment uh, in the camp um, but the cloud that you mentioned it's there like having just come back from Australia this week it was already a story prior to the final game on Monday against Nigeria and we saw that very unsightly spat between Vera Pau and uh, Katie McCabe, the captain, in the second half of the game. Um, this has been brewing, I suppose, behind the scenes and now in front of the scenes for a long time. And the question, I suppose, is is how wide is that rift? Um, is it just Team Katie versus Team Vera? Or is it uh, the bulk of the players against the manager, which is probably the more logical uh, summation of this? Um, so it's left the manager very isolated. Um, you often get this in sport, particularly in GEA, where there's a you know mutinous behaviour goes on in teams, and there's only one outcome. But the third uh, element of this, I suppose, is uh, the one you'd expect more of, which is the FEI, who are various employers, and they have been um, standing idly by, watching this mess really unfold without doing much. Um, so if anything, um, I think the event on Monday has probably garnered a bit of sympathy for Vera. Um, that maybe wasn't there before, you know, the whole idea of a player encroaching on a on a manager's decision making is just sacrilege. This doesn't happen. And, you know, it's okay to suggest things, but um to say what she said, 
Uh, what we could hear in the stadium was certainly freshen things up. I've, I think the statement we heard was, I've asked you to freshen things up in a very authoritative tone. And then Vera uh, relayed later in the press conference that that actually related to bringing off a specific player, which was Sinead Farrelly. Because like, re- reading between the lines, I think people who might have been paying a bit more attention to the team than they might otherwise have beforehand, they would be listening to things that Vera Pei was saying in press conferences and listening to her general manner and demeanor. And like people obviously say things can get lost in translation. But there were things like in the, in the Columbia game, that infamous Columbia game that was cancelled after just 20-odd minutes. There was a quote attributed to Vera where she said there was fear in the players' eyes. Now, I can imagine that that would uh, rub a lot of players up the wrong way, and there's been several comments like that over the last little while, where have things kind of come to a head, do you think, between Vera and the players? And it's obviously unfortunate that it's against this backdrop of the the kind of big, momentous uh, occasion in Ireland, Ireland women's sport. Yeah, there's no better place to have a road in front of the world, I suppose. Um, so what you say is is accurate. Um, the comments that she makes do perplex people, and particularly when they seem to denigrate the players, they take it very personally. Um, so that type of talk after the Columbia game, which in a, again in itself was a very questionable decision to play Columbia, a team that are notoriously physical. Um, uh, even Colin Bell, I'm watching his team at the moment there playing uh, the former Royal manager. He had said that their most physical team of the 32 of the tournament. Um, so the whole genesis of how that match was scheduled again caused certain divisions. Um, and the comment she makes, yeah, you could call it Dutch, Dutch directness, um, which only gets you so far. I think we've now got to the stage where people are just tired of it. They just can't take any more because... There was the other comment then after the Canada game, which was the second match that we lost, where she mentioned about the um the question was asked about uh, switching from a back five to a back four. And the explanation given by way of defence was that her defenders, while good players, are not the quickest. Um, Which again has an element of truth, but so to, to, to say that out loud in front of the world's media, Again, would have been felt as being patronising. and uh, It's the kind of thing we'd imagine might be said behind closed doors when the players are talking about tactics and things like that and the, the kind of things that they have to do. But to hear kind of negative opinions being shared as a player about, about yourself in, in the media by the manager, it's obviously, and these things keep building to a head. It's, do you think it's a shame that it's such a big factor now when we're looking back and obviously we're going to have this reception tonight. Is it a shame that this has kind of taken over to a certain extent because it's taking away from what was actually a great achievement getting there in the first place? Absolutely. It's completely tainted it. Because um, if you look at the achievement in itself, like Ireland had never qualified for anything, um, be it the Euros or the World Cup. And the World Cup, as it is with the men's team, is far more difficult to qualify than the Euros. Um only 11 teams, 11 European nations qualified directly. Um, and then the 12th, which is Portugal, came through the playoffs in New Zealand. So that's 12 European teams, whereas the Euros themselves is 16 teams. So it was a very difficult um, uh, qualifying process that they came through. They had to overcome Finland, who were a second seed above them. They beat them twice. Um, even four points would have been enough. But the fact that they beat them in both games, um, they went to Gothenburg, and went ahead against Sweden, who were the top seed, and drew one all. So the qualifying feat in itself was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And I think for that accomplishment alone, Vera deserved a new contract. Um, but bear in mind, that was last October. 
and they were waiting and waiting and uh, I think the key period was really was between October and Christmas because Christmas was around the time when the first murmurs of um, allegations from America were sweeping over the Atlantic. Yeah, I, I, wanted, I, I did want to touch on that. Could, could you just tell people who might not be fully aware of, of what exactly has been coming out um, in America about Vera because she obviously used to work there. She used to work with players over there and there's been kind of questioning of her methods and, and, and the way she acted to two players and staff while, while she was over in America. Yeah, so Vera's CV is predominantly international football. So she was a Dutch international and uh, she managed her own, t- her own nation of Netherlands, Scotland, uh, South Africa, but she did take this job with a, a very high-profile team in America called Houston Dash in 2018. And she didn't last that long. She was there less than a year. And there would have been certain, you know, criticisms of her and her and her, um, her methods, say, that maybe would have appeared on social media since she came into the Ireland um, fold. But it was only really around Christmas when there was a report commissioned by the NWSL, which is the American League, and the players' union into a raft of abuses that had gone on historically, um, some of them very serious. One of them involving actually Sinead Farley, who we mentioned earlier, but we'll park that for one side. Um, so Vera was actually listed in that, um, as being someone who was involved in controlling behaviour of players, uh, and the second accusation was one of weight shaming. So, um, the report itself was anonymised. There was no names mentioned, but I think it was two players who had made the accusations. And then we got involved in the whole um, uh, veracity of this report in terms of Vera's participation or not. And she claimed when this came out that she hadn't been given basically a fair trial, that she was interviewed by the two legal firms, um, but they wouldn't allow her to uh, record the interview. So she withdrew. And that was uh, captured in words in the report by saying that she did not cooperate with the report or the, the investigation. Which obviously has very negative connotations in itself. And it, like, w- w- would you be fair to say then, if we're, if we're using the, the cloud analogy again, that this cloud started to gather a little bit over Vera Pau's management of the team, maybe in the background, and, it, and it, kind of, it kind of came to the fore again just before the women flew out for Australia? Yeah, so at that time, you know, Vera just by chance was actually having um, a press conference um, in Abbottstown and she came out very strong against it. And moreover than that, her, her employers, particularly FEI chairman Roy Barrett, um, gave her 100% support and called, actually referred to the, this report as a sham uh, and thought it was completely inappropriate that her name had been bundled in with more serious uh, offenders or certainly accused so at that stage, it sort of had maybe withered away publicly. Um, but then, as you say, closer to the tournament, you know, late June, sort of got wind that was maybe there was going to be something else coming. And that manifested in um, a long investigation by the Athletic Publication, the American uh, publication, um, who spoke to a wider pool of players who were there and staff, I think there was seven in total. And that was, that was published just a week of the... Um, in the week leading up to Ireland's farewell game, which was against France. So some people might have considered that that, that was, you know, malicious and so on. But um, what's strangely, what's striking for me is the FUI didn't make any comment this time on these allegations because back in the turn of the year, 
the question was asked, well, do you expect any more to come of this? And they said no. So as far as they're concerned, this was chapter closed. Let's move on. And here you are six months later with more detailed allegations. Some of which I think Vera, she got into the detail of and said maybe they were misconstrued or so on, or that was just her manner. But they just sat there and that, again, just completely hijacked the build-up to the um, to the farewell for a tremendous achievement for the team. Yeah, because like obviously we're we're building up to this this massive momentous event in Irish sport, in Irish women's sport, and we have this thing lingering over it, and then afterwards we have another thing lingering over it. The ideal prep and the ideal post um, World Cup hasn't really been there for us. But like in terms of how we actually played, like you referenced the the, the France game there that was on in Tala just before the women left for the World Cup. And I, I went to that game myself. It was it was a great experience. Obviously, France are a higher ranked team than us and have been very impressive at the World Cup so far. They're going to the, the next round. Like I, I thought in the first half of that game, we had decent spells of possession. We created a few good chances, but then we kind of retreated into ourselves a little bit, hit with a couple of sucker punches, and then the game was gone and we couldn't find our way back into it. And I felt like having watched that game live and then watching us against Australia and Canada, where there were periods where we were very much in those games, but just getting caught out at crucial moments really cost us. And when when we were on the back foot, we didn't have the ability then to get back into the games. Was, was, was that was that something that you could see or what was your overall impression then of the... Because obviously the first two games were the most crucial ones and after losing them, we were out. So what was your take of what you saw in those games? Yeah, I think we're a team, and this predates Vera's time in 2019, we're a team who have to score first. Um, if we go behind... Uh, I don't think we've won a competitive match since 2015 after going behind. We're just not that sort of team. We have a plan A and plan B is in much use. So what what was really worrying about that France game was we were we were conceding goals and chances that we hadn't really done in the group. And again, it goes back to, I think, the mental preparation. Um, like Katie McCabe, you know, who's sort of dominant in this, this whole narrative, she at the pre-match press conference, called this a negative noise um, because the whole press conference was dominated by questions about Vera. Nothing really about the World Cup or playing Australia in 75,000 stadiums. So that had to get into players' minds and they've actually since referenced it. Only, you know, I think yesterday, Denise O'Sullivan uh, in our Twitter sort of um, summary mentioned the word distraction and it had to have done so. It had to have got into the camp and seeped through because you're getting lapses that are very uncharacteristic of the team like that match that you you referenced they conceded twice in first half stoppage time the game is over it's only a friendly and then to compound it the third goal at the end was was really unusual for Northern team it was a, just a, a, a routine corner cross in and the French player buried a header free header you know so um, you could probably see that already at that stage there was a level of mental fatigue kicking in or mental w- weariness um, and everything we've sort of heard, you know, vocally and in the body language since points towards a very disruptive preparation. Isn't that such a shame then because there was such a big build up and we, we have some players playing to a very high level. Again, we, we knew we had a tough group, but there were reasons to be positive. And then to get this far and then to have be facing these these distractions, which which players themselves have said. Do you, do you feel like it's a real shame? Obviously, there's chance to come back. We may be back again, but for, for our fourth World Cup to have these kind of impediments maybe to to us having uh, been more successful, do you, do you feel it's a big shame? It is, completely, because as much as the achievement was qualifying, I think 
the sense of regret is huge. You know, when you look at other teams who have uh, been underdogs, let's say, at the World Cup, you know, Jamaica, South Africa, both in the last 16. But the biggest and obvious example is is um, Nigeria in our own group, who were the bottom seeds and uh, got five points. We got one point. And you talk about preparation, like Nigeria's preparation was was catastrophic. Like at one point, their manager, Randy Waldron, wasn't even going to leave America to come over because he was in this open warfare with his organisation. They called him a blabbermouth. Players weren't being paid. He hadn't been paid. He was having undue influence, you know, from the president and there was a war of words going on. And look, they go in and play Canada in the first game. They eke out a, uh, a nil-nil draw, save the penalty. But then they play Australia in Brisbane. I was actually at the match. They go one behind. And then they soar into a 3-1 lead uh, against Australia. They absolutely dissected Australia. It ended up finishing 3-2. So by the time they played us, they were virtually in the last 16. Um, which really should have been us, you know, <laughs> to be selfish about it. And I know that's the mindset of the players. Because if you look at our games, take them in isolation. We're playing Australia in the first game. And the news comes through 90 minutes before the match that Sam Kerr isn't playing. Now, the, for people who don't know who Sam Kerr is, she is renowned as the world's top striker, not just Australia's best player, but she's the poster girl of women's, the English Women's Soccer League, but also Australian football, and she's not in the team. Well, sure, I remember seeing on Twitter beforehand, everyone was jubilant at the, at the idea that this big player for our opponents wouldn't be playing. And it, it was a massive, okay, just this, this really boosts our chances now going into the game. And then obviously, obviously it didn't go that way. Yeah, because we were at the pre-match press conference and it was, she was kind of quite emotional, you know, about the prospect of playing. This is someone who's played around the world. She's played in America. She's golden boots. She's, you know, the Ballon d'Or contender. And she was going to be in her own backyard, you know, captain in the team. And... Little did we know, she knew, uh, the manager knew, we didn't know that she was she was ruled out at that stage, she had a calf injury. Um, but going back to ourselves, that was a huge boost for us going into that game because, you know, Australia had ended England's sort of winning record and she had scored the goal um, in England. And everything about her, even when we played them in a friendly, you know, two years ago, she was the main striker. She was the one that you had to be worried about getting in behind there defence that's not the quickest let's say and that was um that was eliminated so that was a major boost for us going into the game but the most disappointing part for from our point of view was our approach it was very defensive really defensive and even when we conceded the goal early in the second half it took a while it was only really the last 15 minutes when we went for that you know that typical Irish uh, ploy of putting the centre back up front Louise Quinn that we got a bit of joy but not much and I think that was the big regret, considering what you, when you see how easily Nigeria took them apart in the next game as well. So that was the Australia game. And it feels like it's one of those uh, very well-worn Irish football tropes that um, if our manager would just let the shackles off and let us play ball, we'd have we'd have a big chance in this. And it felt like that definitely became the narrative over this World Cup. Yeah, in the, in the second game, it certainly improved. Okay, Canada, you are playing Canada and... We needed something out of that game, you know, or I think our lives were, were used up in the Australia week. We would have needed four points to go through and we started well. Um, Lucy Quinn came into the team and she created that good chance that the goalkeeper put wide and then Katie, Katie McCabe bangs a worldie into the top corner from, from a corner. Um, and we're one up, you know, we're one up, we're dominant and um, 
with a couple more half chances, um, and then we just got done, just coming in, just in first half stoppage time. But there were still similarities in that game to the Australia game in terms of our caution, and again, just pushing it forward a little bit, you know, in terms of our our world class players. We have Katie McCabe, obviously, but Denise O'Sullivan would be in a similar bracket, but. Unlike North Carolina Courage, where she's captain, um, she plays an advanced role, like a number eight or a number ten, as it would be known. Vera would use her as a as a defensive midfielder. So basically she plays as back five and then has two holding midfielders sitting right in front. And Denise was one of those for the first two games. And it was only in the third game where she came to her senses and played her forward or forward. And it was revealing how re- relieved Denise was speaking to her afterwards that she's finally again, had the shackles taken off, that she was able to play for the forward and get that freedom. And as she said herself, that's just that's just natural for her. So again, you're talking about attitude and approaches and Vera would just have this reputation as being a cautious defensive coach. Very similar to sort of Giovanni Trapattoni uh, going back to you know, the 2012 Euros where he looked at a group of players and said, I'm not going to get a whole lot out of these, so I'll try and make the most of what I have. And that means... Really having a, a sort of a, a staring back line, not conceding anything, and trying to get a goal maybe from a set piece. It does feel like the Trapattoni comparison. I think I think it, it is quite valid in a way because there was a sense with Trapattoni where he almost got us to a World Cup, he got us to a Euros where we hadn't been for a long time, but that was that was as far that was as far as as he could take us, and he made he made the conscious choice that we were going to play this defensive football that didn't really get us anywhere uh, at that stage, and it feels like there's a similar perception. Uh, about Vera that she did amazingly well to get us to where we've gotten to but when when it came to crunch time when it came to the time where we could really kick on and there were there were points in all the games where we where we could have if things had gone a different way we could have kicked on and maybe maybe got got the results that we needed but it just at key moments we just didn't have the either the tactic spot on or the the players in the right positions to to get that what we needed yeah just on the Trapattoni analogy like you know Ireland's best performance under Trapattoni was probably the Paris playoff, the second leg, the famous Thierry Henry um, handball. And it was, you know, revealed at the time and elaborated on further that, that that approach came from the players. You know, they'd lost the first leg 1-0 at Crow Park. And they felt that they were they had been restrained. And there's this, you know, famous story of the back of the bus and the lad saying, never mind the manager. You know, we're not going to have regrets here. A lot of us will never have a chance to play the World Cup again. And they basically made an internal decision that they were going to go for it, and they did. And Robbie Keane scored that equaliser, and it was a, it was it was such a breath of fresh air to see the way that he played, which was so untrapatoni like at the time. Um, so and then we know what happened, the injustice of it. So yeah, moving it on to Vera, yeah, there are parallels there, and I suppose it brings up the salient point: is has she taken this team as far as she can, and? Uh, I think we're in that territory now and uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks ahead. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Just to switch to a different topic in that the support that we get wherever we go is always absolutely 
astounding. And like I remember seeing the scenes in Perth, especially in the second game against Canada, where we essentially took over the stadium. Like for, for, from your experience being there, what what was it like in terms of just seeing the the sea of green everywhere and just the the usual camaraderie and positivity of of, of the Irish fans? Yeah, it's you know as you say, it's just something that goes with our with our sport and culture. Um, people follow us around, but then you have the Australian factor is the volume of expats living there um is is huge and you would have seen that in terms of the first game that there was such a high demand from the home crowd um that the allocation was quite small for the Irish fans but they still were speckled around the ground and they made they made noise. Um then you move on to Perth which you know is is sort of the first stop in Australia so it's it's where a lot of Irish would go first um on on the uh, on the western seaboard and that was a that was in the rectangular stadium, which is a much smaller stadium. It's only 22,000. Um, and uh, I'd say there was 90% Irish there. And you could just feel it around the city in the day or two before that it was a takeover. Um, not the most aesthetically pleasing ground. There were some strange quirks to it. And I know, I think Perth Glory, the team that were a resident there, um, ran into difficulties financially when they tried to do it up. But it, it was a fairly basic ground compared to some of the other spaceships that we've seen. Um, sort of a traditional ground. Um, but the atmosphere was great, and even the players talk about it that they could hear about it. In, they could hear it in the tunnel, um, beforehand when they were coming out. So listen, fans don't let us down, you know. But as Roy Keane would say, are we going for the sing song? Or are we going to win matches? You know, and uh, the ledger says that we came back out. You know, a game early with one point and one goal. It does say it all, doesn't it? Um, like just to put into context again, then how far the team has come. Like it's only six years ago the women's team felt compelled to hold a press conference, speaking about how they had to get changed in toilets and and share tracksuits and the lack of support and the lack of funding from the FAI. Like it, it's it's crazy that that's such a short time ago, relatively. And then we're at the World Cup and we're. We're represent like these women are representing their country on the global stage. It's it, it's such a massive turnaround. And um, like, are, are the players really aware of the the significance of that and the kind of historic nature of that? I I think like you could really see it in the in the way that all they all spoke when they were speaking to media. It was, it was I thought it was particularly strong. Yeah, like it was it was you know the lot of good pictures you know snapshots of this journey. Um, but the one out in UCD the day that they got their jerseys, that group shot. Um, in the Aroyde Hall, when you compare that picture to the one in Liberty Hall, you know, which was only, you know, as you say, six, seven years earlier, it was incredible because a lot of the players had been at both. So when you consider what they had to put up with back then, you know, players coming out of work, not having any loss of earnings, going away to hotels and not having Wi-Fi. And then, the you know, the most scandalous thing of all was giving back those tracksuits, you know, which are only for the under-19 boys. So... Like as I know, speaking to Megan Connolly, we did a feature interview with her, and she said that she, that moment, you know, that famous moment, the spotlight was going to be on them before the, the Australia game. She'd be thinking of the Emma Bournes of this world, you know, the ones who really put their neck on the line back then, because Emma was coming towards the end of her career at the time. You know, she didn't, she she actually wasn't there that much longer afterwards, and um, she really put it up to the FEI because don't forget the FEI was John Delaney really at the time, and. Uh, a lot of false promises, uh, shabby treatment, but it really worked. Their bravery was vindicated, as we know, and things changed. They got a collective bargaining agreement in place. They got equal pay eventually, 
uh, only the last couple of years. So that stuff had to be sorted out before you could expect any results on the pitch. Um, and it really put the onus on the players that there couldn't really be any excuses anymore. You know, if they if they got what they wanted and there was they didn't want for anything, um, they had to deliver, and they did. You know, they did, and it has gradually come. Like if you look at the, you look at that campaign, that last World Cup campaign before the last one, it was a really difficult draw. We had Norway and Holland, and Holland were actually the second seed, and they were the European champions. So the first sort of signal of the team turning into a competitive force was when we went to Holland in Neumagen, I think it was, um, later that year in 2017, and drew nil all. Okay, it was like a victory, because the st- I was there that night, the stadium was packed full of Dutch fans who were celebrating winning the Euros, but we held them to a draw, and it just shows that we could implement a game, game plan. Um, but it was it was a very difficult group, and obviously Norway and Holland went through. Then the next uh, campaign, the European one, uh, which was when the one that Vera came in at the start of because Colin Bell had left her and all the FEI tribulations. Um, we got Germany and Ukraine. And again, if you just look at the structure of it, we're nearly always a third seed and it's only the top two seeds who are in the mix, whether it's go directly or go to a playoff. So we beat Ukraine in the first game at home, which was a big turning point. I think it was 3-2. And... Um, uh, it came down to the second last game, which was in Ukraine, at the, in Kiev. And this was during COVID. This was October 2020. And people may listen and may remember that it was anything that could go wrong did go wrong that day. Katie McCabe, um, who was so prolific from set pieces, struck a penalty against the crossbar. Um, and then on, you know, Gorman had that first alone goal, uh, which you couldn't just blame her for. I think the goalkeeper at the time, Courtney Brosnan, would, would have been... A bit, uh, a bit at fault as well. So, um, so that's sort of the history of the campaigns. So coming around to this campaign, there was high hopes that a lot of the players were coming into the peak of their careers. Like Katie and Denise were late twenties. A lot of the defenders were only sort of early thirties. Um, and then you had a sprinkle of young players coming in as well. So it was felt that there was a lot of optimism that we could do something in this campaign. After having paid their dues and, and had the bad luck, then they, they got to run a good luck. And obviously when it when it came down to the crunch against Scotland, we we, we eventually got over the line and and, and qualified for the World Cup uh, in the end. Um, just looking more generally now, like what, what do you think that this means now for, for Irish women's football and, and, and Irish women's sport? Like I, I think it's beyond doubt now that when they're given that exposure, when the spotlight is on them, people will flock to support them. There's huge support all over the country. We've seen watch parties uh, in Cork, in Dublin, in Galway, everywhere else. And th- there'll be thousands across the country now who are growing up wanting to be the next Kate McCabe or Denise or Abby Larkin only coming through, just like so many people wanted to be the next Paul McGrath or Robbie Keane or whoever beforehand. Like uh, They've obviously done so much by getting to the World Cup. And I, I, like it's, Would you agree that like things are only going to move forward in future or, or they should move forward in future, given the, the example that they've set now? Yeah, you're right, they should. Um and it's the FEO's job to ensure that that happens. But when you look back at the, you know, Jack Charlton era, it didn't necessarily translate into domestic success. Um so uh yeah, the interest is there, you know, in both in terms of popularity. You saw I think it was half a million viewing figures for the Canada match. Um huge interest. So um the girls and boys, you know, if that inspires them to go out and play football maybe ones who aren't already, well, that's job done. You just have to make sure that there's 
a structure in place at grassroots level where there are places for these players that they don't go down to girls don't go down to clubs and they're told that there's not you know it's only a boys club um so that's what it brings into a broader debate of where the government are and you know we met thomas Bourne, the sports minister down in uh, sydney and they're certainly leaning a lot of their uh, grant criteria on uh sort of a gender balance you know it's not just at the top level with fei boardroom but if you're a club who's applying for a grant you've got to demonstrate that you're catering for girls as well so if that's going to be stilted that way you'd like to think that both will rise together um and that this can be really capitalized on and that you do have the next generation of players who are ready to come through because there are already some you know in the existing system sort of from 16 to 19 year olds some really good players that are there because this there will be whether it's Vera or someone else there is going to be a bit of a rebuild going on with this one because a lot of them are if they're not going to return now they certainly will be you know after the next campaign yeah that, that was one thing I was going to ask you to, nearly to wrap up like, like is this only the start for some of those players like I mentioned Abby Larkin there only only a teenager and made, made a big impact like will, will we be seeing Kate McCabe at a big tournament again will we be seeing Denise maybe some of those defenders might we might not see again Um, but do you think that the, the the signs are positive, whoever the manager may be? The signs are positive for this group of players and the people who we the talent we might have coming through going forward. Yeah, the, the, there's a good nucleus there. You know, um, like the way it works is now the Nations League begins in September with that game in in Aviva Stadium. I think it's the twenty second of Saturday, twenty second of September, and we really have to win that group to get into the League A of the next part of the Euros. So. Again, without getting too bogged down, we've a really good chance, I think, of getting to the Euros in Switzerland, which is 2025. You look at the player profile that's there, you you might have one or two. Maybe Diane Caldwell will step out. I think Neil Fahey's going to stay on. Um, Anya Gorman will probably step out. But there are other players coming into those positions who are well capable. For example, um, Jess Stapleton. Jesse Stapleton just signed for West Ham. She didn't even get into 23, which was a dubious call. Um, another couple of players in Ella Malloy, um, who plays for Wexford she had done her crucius, um, during the qualifying campaign and then Jess Sue a lot of Jesses here uh, Jessica Sue who's also at West Ham uh, she did her ACL and had, had actually started the game Um, she started the game with Slovakia the one that clinched the playoff so there's just three players alone then you have you know the likes of Leanne Kiernan and Megan Connolly uh, with a long throw hopefully you know her injury settled down so there's a lot of players who weren't there and then some who were there who just didn't get on. Um, so if you're gonna, if you're gonna build your team around you know those those two stars, there is a there is a lot of quality there, which would be certainly on a par with some of our European peers, the likes of Scotland and Wales and them who would be sort of in that third seed category, and we we are probably moving out towards a second seed category where the expect it's more of an expectation, uh, to qualify than not. I think um, uh, history has told us when uh, an Irish football team expects uh, sometimes we might be disappointed but fingers crossed uh, we're not in this case uh, just just one final thing to wrap up because I, you've kind of touched on it a few times like we were talking about the, the reception tonight and how some players might feel maybe a bit awkward being there given they've come home after just three games do you think do you think that there's an awful lot of regret in the team or uh, do they do they also have a sense of pride for getting that far What what, what would, if you could sum up maybe the overall mood of how they're feeling after, it's after. one to agonise over, you know, like if you even look at Amber Barrett's uh, social media post yesterday, yeah, you can get wrapped up in the emotion and the nostalgia and the history of it, which will ne never be taken away from them, you know, there'll, always, there'll never be another first World Cup goal, 
But if you're going to go there, you know, make an impact. Um, and with all the friction going on in the background, I think that's what will really be the will will be the fallout with this. Saying if things had been sorted out, if the FBI had been more assertive in this and sorted things out rather than letting them go as they did, would we have had a better chance? Um, and uh, I think in the back of players' minds, that's that's the way they're thinking. Um, yeah, let's celebrate what we've done. It's a, it's a, it's an achievement like no other. Um, but just you know the uh, I think the reality is sort of coming out in the last few weeks. Fractures are are showing up, and um, we were there. We were we were there to compete, and unfortunately, we didn't in results. You know, we didn't performances in some elements, but it certainly could have been better. Well, listen, John, Cheers. thanks so much. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about Virapau over the next few weeks when we, when we see how that all plays out. But listen, that was John Fallon, soccer correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Thanks so much, John. No problem. So thanks so much for joining us on the Mick Clifford podcast. Mick will be back next week as normal. And until then, thanks very much. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.